Welcome to Living Through the Word, the podcast ministry of the Anglican Diocese of the Living Word. Here we bring in different guests from around the diocese and Christendom to discuss topics that matter for your ministry and life today. I'm Julian Dobbs, the Diocesan Bishop of the Anglican Diocese of the Living Word. Living Through the Word serves two purposes. First, to connect and showcase the people and ministries of the diocese. Second, to contribute to the continuing education of laity, clergy, and others who listen in. To that end, we are incredibly privileged to have with us on today's episode perhaps the leading scholar on the topic of the origin of the New Testament. Dr. Michael Kruger is the president and the Samuel C. Patterson Professor of New Testament and Early Christianity at Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina. Amongst Dr. Kruger's many accolades and responsibilities, uh, he is the president of the Evangelical Theological Society. Dr. Kruger, thank you so much for being my guest today. Thank you so much. Great to be with you. Uh, Dr. Kruger, tell us just a little bit about uh, RTS and what your ministry is there. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, Reformed Theological Seminary just celebrated uh, about its 53rd, 54th year, and uh, that was begun uh, in Jackson, Mississippi in the late 1960s, uh, now has uh, eight or nine campuses across the nation, and one of those campuses is in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I've been in Charlotte for 18 years as a professor of New Testament and then as president of the campus for the last six. So we're just grateful well, for what the Lord's doing here. Absolutely. And we're also very grateful for RTS. Uh, a number of clergy in our own diocese um, are graduates. Uh, uh, names that are familiar to you, like Carl and Karen Ellis, are both friends of mine, as is uh, Hugh Welchel and his wife, Leslie, uh, great friends uh, and colleagues. Yes, uh, and uh, we've got a, D, a campus up in the D.C. area, as you well know, um, and uh, we're excited to see RTS's reach up in that area and, and grateful for all those connections that uh, you mentioned. Dr. Kruger, you've written uh, many books. Um, uh, your book, Christianity at the Crossroads, was published recently dealing with how the second century shaped the future of the church. Uh, if I might say so, it's a wonderful book. Uh, thank you for writing it. Uh, it had me captivated on each page uh, I read. Uh, it addresses numerous insights and wisdom into the second century church. Fascinatingly, uh, one area that you write about is the ministry of the bishop. Um, should there be one bishop over a cluster or, or network of congregations, or uh, is the bishop a presbyter, perhaps the first amongst equals, the primus inter pares? Uh, we'll come back to that question, uh, if we might, uh, Dr. Kruger. But first, let's talk about the Bible. Uh, you will be aware, sir, no doubt, that the uh, Anglican communion is facing what I've described as a crisis of confidence in the Bible. Uh, there has been a collapse in biblical literacy, and the fact is that over the past, let's say, 100 years, there has been one wave after another wave of attack on the Bible, its inspiration, its inerrancy, the, uh, the sufficiency of Scripture. Uh, a poll of nearly 2,000 clergy in one province of the Anglican Communion revealed that only half of those clergy polled believed that faith in Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation. So, Dr. Kruger, what is your response to someone who asks you, can we trust the Bible as the Word of God written? Well, yeah, that's a great great place to start any conversation about the health of the Church is the way the Church views the Bible. And, um, you know, you gave me the 
uh, and your listeners that little overview there of what's been going on in the Anglican world for a while. And I think everybody knows who's listening is it's not just the Anglican world, right? Um, I'm That's more right. on the, in the Presbyterian world, and it's been happening there. It's happened in the the Baptist world, the Lutheran world, the Methodist world, the broader evangelical Bible church world. Um, you know, and it just shows you how central the issue of biblical authority is for every branch of Christendom. Um, you know, if we don't have a, a reliable word from our Lord, then then what what do we have? We we just have the opinions of men, and uh, we're, we're we're floundering around in the dark if we don't have a, a reliable place to turn to know what God has to say to His people. So, as you mentioned, and as maybe some of the listeners know, I've devoted good chunk of my academic career just to that issue. Um, you know, when people ask me, can we trust the word of God? There's so many different ways to answer that. Um, it's such a broad question. Um, you know, we can start in lots of different, different places. And in, in, in when, when asked that question, we can talk about certainly the historical credentials of scripture, which I think are excellent. And we can always get into those. Um, we can talk about the, the, the sort of power and, 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 and beauty and wonder and, and clarity and unity of scripture, which is something that we see when we get in it and look at it. And we think those testify to its divine origins. And we could also talk about the unity of God's people over the generations and how they look to it as, as, uh, as, as a divine voice from, from God. And that's actually one of the things that I know you probably want to point out to your, your listeners is that the, 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 the attacks on the Bible in recent years actually go against the entire history of the church, which has been consistently affirming the the Bible as the ultimate authority from God. Yeah, that's that's fascinating, isn't it? And and, and so true and so important in the body of Christ for us to remember. Although uh, there are portions of the church today that seem to dismiss uh, the history of the church so readily uh, to embrace a new innovation of doctrine or whatever it may be. Um, article six of the thirty nine articles of religion on the sufficiency of Holy Scripture for salvation say this. Holy Scripture contains all things necessary for salvation. Consequently, whatever is not read in Scripture nor can be proved from Scripture cannot be demanded from any person to believe it as an article of the faith, nor is any such thing to be thought necessary or required for salvation by the Holy Scripture, says the article, is meant those canonical books of the Old and New Testament whose authority has never been doubted within the church. So is that, is that fair? Were they never doubted? Um, this is your area of expertise. Was there ever <laughs> disagreement? Was there was there a vote about how we got to the New Testament canon? Um, what you know, was there a synod that brought us the four gospels? Um, you know, in our diocese, we require a two thirds majority to do various things. Um, how is it that we came to have the canon as we did? Did they have to have a vote? Yeah, and I think Bill, yeah, great question. Um, I think you know, before I would even get to that, I would just make a distinction in the question. You know, there's two different questions. You know, when a book is considered scripture, what does that mean about that book? Is it reliable and trustworthy and inerrant? That's one question. And the second question is, well, which books are scripture? Uh, when I talk about the unity of the church, uh, certainly the former is true, which is that for any book regarded as scripture, it's, to, it's, it's viewed as divinely inspired and, and reliable and, and to be thought of as God's word. There's a second question, of course, is which books are scripture? I also think there's great unity on that. Um, however, anybody who studied the origins of the canon knows there are there are periods of, of what we might call disagreement and debate. Now, whenever you say that, t- t- the heart rate of most listeners tends to go up and they think, oh, no, you mean Christians didn't always agree on these things? Well, I think you have to put in perspective what that debate on disagreement looks like as it pertains to the New Testament, which is my area. Um, when we talk about de- debate and disagreement, we're talking about over a very 
small number of books and over a very limited number of, of, of years. And this is something that's important for people to grasp. When the New Testament emerged, there was a, a core collection in place very early that, that generally there was widespread unanimity over. And most of the so-called debates were really over just a handful of books, maybe four or five. And those really were the small books that took longer to be recognized. And so, yeah, there was disagreement at points. I, I, I wouldn't characterize it as is widespread. I wouldn't characterize it as a division. I would characterize it as ongoing dialogue about some of the books that took longer to to recognize as from God. And, and the Gospels themselves, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, uh, would it be fair to say that the church received those? Uh, how would you describe it? Yeah. Uh, what's interesting about the Gospels is, as you indicated a moment ago, I think many people have this idea that that people decided the Gospels or they chose the Gospels or even voted on the Gospels. And uh, there's a widespread perception out there that that's what happened, almost as if Christians in the second century, for example, were kind of reading all sorts of things and didn't really know what to read. And finally, someone said, hey, we should decide this, so let's decide it. Everybody vote. And people have decided that that's how it happened. But but historically speaking, there's no indication that's how it happened. Rather than viewing the Gospels as something chosen by the church, I think it's better to see the Gospels as something uh, handed down to the church. So much so that as it pertains to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they seem to have been there kind of from the start. Um, if you were to ask an early Christian, let's say second century Christian, why you chose Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they would look at you sort of strangely. They wouldn't think they chose these books. They would say, what are you talking about? These aren't the books we voted on or picked. These are the books that were handed down to us from the apostles. So I think that really changes the tenor of the debate because now it's not an issue of how they pick the books. It's an issue of of uh, how those books were handed down. And, and for the early Christians, they viewed them as sort of uh, uh, something that was their heritage, something they inherited, something they received. Um, and that tells you that they were part of the church very early. So that also lends into the whole concept of receiving them, caring for them, upholding them, defending them, not going beyond them, uh, not subtracting from them. They were received. Uh, the church receives them as the word of God. Correct. I mean, once a book is received as the Word of God and it's treated as Scripture, then obviously um, you don't put demands on people that go beyond what Scripture says, um, and you don't add to or take away. In fact, I've written an article in the last uh, number of years uh, that came out in an Oxford volume, I think 2012 or 2013, I, the date escapes me, but where I wrote an article on the whole concept of neither adding or taking away, mm. which was a very common refrain in early Christianity, which of course goes back to the Old Testament, right? I mean, back to the, to the, to the, to Deuteronomy 4, just the, you know, you don't, don't add to scripture or take away from it. Um, and so this idea of a, of a, of a collection of, of writings that you were not allowed to just supplement at will is a very ingrained thing within early Christianity. So Dr. Kruger, that could lead us uh, into a question about the Apocrypha. Um, so, some Anglicans have included some apocryphal material in their lectionaries, uh, others in some of their liturgies. Uh, quoting Jerome, uh, the articles teach us that the books of the Apocrypha are read by the church for examples of life and instruction in behavior, but the church does not use them to establish any doctrine. W would you just briefly help us, assist us in understanding the place of the Apocrypha? Yeah, uh, for your readers or listeners, rather, um, the term apocrypha can have many different meanings. In fact, scholars use the word in various ways. The word apocryphal just means hidden, um, and we use it to refer to books outside the canon generally. So there are apocryphal books in the Old Testament canon and apocryphal books in the New Testament canon. 
But then when we use the definite article with it, the Apocrypha, typically we're referring just to those intertestamental books that ultimately Protestants and Roman Catholics disagree on. So this would be books like First, Second Maccabees, Judith, Tobit, and so on. Um, and we all know that at the Council of Trent, that that was uh, sort of codified as official Catholic teaching. Now, what you picked up on is, is that there's other branches of the church, Anglican, for example, that value these books and appreciate these books as helpful, um, but don't necessarily uh, regard them as scripture. And I think that is probably true for many branches of the church throughout the generations, as they found these books helpful and useful, but not scriptural. Um, and so I think there's a lot of wisdom in, in seeing that way, seeing the books in that way. Um, you know, it'll probably be a, a, a longstanding uh, dispute with with Roman Protestants, no doubt, for many years to come. But but Anglicans, in one sense, have taken not not a, not a compromise view, but really a Protestant view, effectively, but yet one that still acknowledges the value of these books. And I think they do have value as long as they're not treated as scripture. Yeah, and I think that's obviously what the article is trying to underscore, isn't it? Um, of course, not to to use them to establish any doctrine, uh, but where they can be helpful and so on. Uh, perhaps, um, and and for the listeners' benefit, um, while Dr. Kruger and I did have a discussion before uh, this episode, I didn't ask him all the questions I wanted him to ask, so he doesn't know I'm about to ask him this one. But um, <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Kruger. Um, uh, uh, perhaps in this area of discussion, uh, in this portion of our conversation, might be help us, if you would, sir, wrestle with the concept of personal revelation. Um, uh, what what do people mean by personal revelation? Uh, is, there, is there no way God speaks to us outside the Bible, or is it in fact sola scriptura, uh, scripture alone? Yeah, wow, you just you just <laughs> opened up a big conversation there. Um, yeah, people mean different things by personal revelation. Um, in fact, in our culture, we tend to be fairly loose with the way we speak uh, about the way God speaks to us. And so even the average believer will say things like, God told me, or God said to me, or God's leading me. And, 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 and lots of times it's left with a, with a great degree of ambiguity on what that means. And I think for the average Christian, they're not claiming special revelation. They're not claiming that God is audibly speaking to them. They just, it's a, it's a euphemistic phrase for the fact that they think the spirit's at work and, and, and helping guide them. And I think that's perfectly fine. However, some people go beyond that. And, and in the history of the church, they've done this. Uh, I cover in my book, Christianity at the Crossroads, a very famous movement in the second century called the Montanist movement, where they claimed to be getting direct revelation from God or special revelation. And what that means is, uh, they, they thought God was speaking to them, uh, outside the medium of Scripture, that just like the prophets of old, they were receiving uh, a, a direct uh, voice of the Lord. And that created a quite a, a furor within early Christianity. And what's curious about it is the unanimity amongst the Orthodox in the second century against the Montanist movement. What you, what you didn't get a lot of was this idea, well, you know, God works in mysterious ways, or you didn't get a lot of sort of, well, you know, there's no reason to think he stopped speaking because he spoke to the prophets like that. No, on, on the contrary, there was a sense that Scripture had been established by God and was the sole source of His voice speaking, and that we no longer should expect those types of of utterances in the in the current day. And so that that's a curious marking point for us, and I think it does uh, form a, a a part of our view of sola scriptura, which is, you know, although God spoke in a variety of ways in the past, He's spoken once and for all through His Son, and we think that's been captured by the apostles now uh, in the writings of the New Testament. Um, Dr. Kruger, you wrote a book, Canon Revisited. Uh, thank you for writing that. Thank you for helping to elevate the place of the Bible and our understanding of the Bible in so many aspects. Why should people read that book? 
Well, I hope they find it helpful in, in, in maybe one of the, the key questions we've already brought up, which is um, how do we know that we have the right books? Um, and, you know, you know part, of the, part of the problem with the canon discussion is there's t- so many different ways to slice it up. When some people want, about, want to know about the origins of the canon, sometimes they're, they're more interested in, in how it happened. So they're, they're more interested in the when and they're more interested in the how. Um, and that's fine. Those are important historical questions. And we have a lot of data on those things. But in, in, in Canon Revisited, I'm asking a different question. I'm not asking so much when it happened or how it happened, but I'm asking the question of how do we know that what happened is an indication that the books are the right ones, or how could we ever know a book is the right one in the first place? And so more, it's more about epistemology and knowledge and the Christian worldview and how we know things in the Christian worldview. So I try to answer questions in that book that I think a lot of Christians do ask, and, and I also try to answer a question I think ha- has not been answered as much lately. Um, I think historically the church has answered it, but I think there's been too little written on the how we know question. And I hope, I hope Canary Visited tries to, to, to address some of that. Well, I'm personally incredibly grateful that you uh, wrote it. Uh, we'll have the books that we mention in this episode in the podcast show notes. Uh, I'm holding in my hand, Dr. Kruger, uh, Christianity at the Crossroads. Uh, what an incredible book. Thank you for writing this. Uh, I, I encourage our, our listeners to read Christianity at the Cro- Crossroads by uh, Dr. Michael J. Kruger. Um, why this book, Dr. Kruger, and and what is so special about the second century that makes the second century impactful for Christianity in the 21st century? Yeah, great question. I'm, I'm so pleased the book was encouraging to you and and, you know, it's funny, you're using words that, that I'd tip, I wouldn't imagine many people would use for my book. You know, it sounds a lot better than it is, I think, hearing <laughs> you talk about it. You know, it's, it's got a lot of data in it and a lot of information. And for those church history aficionados, you know, maybe that's uh, exhilarating um, for maybe the average reader. Who knows? But I hope people find it useful. I wrote it um, about this curious uh, era of the second century for a number of reasons. Um, I think in many ways, the second century is, is a forgotten century in church history. You know, everybody talks about the first century, obviously, because that's the time of the New Testament documents. And there's lots to say about the third, fourth, fifth centuries, because that's when we have our big patristic sources and, and figures. And then in the middle is the second century, which uh, Larry Hurtado uh, always used to call the Cinderella century. And so there's a, there's a big gap there for one. And that's part of the reason I wrote the book. The other, the other reason I wrote the book is because I'm convinced that a lot of the things that the church faced in the second century and dealt with and and even overcame in the second century are, are what really explain why the church ended up like it did. Um, and the subtitle is designed to capture that, how the second century shaped the future of the church. I think it it, it was at a crossroads there in so many ways, theologically, practically, um, uh, and beyond. And, and, and those, those obstacles that it faced ended up... Uh, sort of making the church pick a pathway that it ended up picking and, 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 and sent it on that path. And as an historian, we, we need to know why it ended up like that. Um, I'll mention one other reason I wrote on it, and that is, I think, the second century, in, in almost a very unexpected way in my research, I didn't know this going in, really mirrors the modern day in, in, mm. in, in shocking ways. I didn't write the book at first for that reason. I just discovered that as I went. I realized, wow, the, the 21st century in the West— strangely, even though it's post-Christian, looks a lot like what Christians faced in, in the second century in the Greco-Roman world. And I know that that's always sort of a truism, and someone could say that about every generation, but I really do believe there's some parallels there that we can learn from. Well, in a moment, Dr. Kruger, I'm going to talk to you about one of those things you raise, which happens to be about bishops. 
Um, but I'm, I'm so grateful for the response of this podcast uh, that it's received and the conversations that's in, in inspired around the diocese and across the church. One of the best ways you can show your support is to subscribe, review, and share the podcast from uh, your player of preference. Uh, Living Through the Word can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Overcast, and TuneIn. Uh, so, Dr. Kruger, let's talk about the ecclesiastical structure of the second century for a moment, and let's uh, specifically speak about bishops. Now, uh, I am a bishop, as you know, uh, so this particular uh, uh, conversation will be of great interest to me. You write about bishops uh, in Christianity at the crossroads. Uh, I've been thinking about uh, the 16th century Archbishop Anglican Archbishop Thomas Cramner, uh, who by choice uh, deliberately left us with bishops in Anglican polity. Uh, other reformers uh, removed the ministry of the bishops. I think Calvin was one of those who in 1541 drew up his ecclesiastical ordinances and he rejected uh, the organization of the medieval church as contrary to the New Testament. Uh, he wanted a church modeled uh, on the church in apostolic times, no bishops, all ministers equal, uh, they had to preach, administer the sacraments, uh, look after the spiritual welfare of people. Um, so, Dr. Kruger, uh, who's right? Uh, <laughs> sh- should we have bishops? Am I out of a job? Uh, have there have always been bishops? Yes, this is a very complicated question, isn't it? And uh, <laughs> I'm I knew listening we'd carefully, get- sir. <laughs> yes. Well, if it's any comfort, you're not out of a job. Um, you have, uh, I think, a great... Uh, pattern within within the history of the church doing what you do. And I think there's some comfort to take in that. Um, I think the, the the larger question is, how did we get bishops? Mm. Uh, when did they start? And, and and what do we make of that? And that's those are the kind of questions I tried to ask in the book. And, you know, I, I want to say to the listener, and of course, you know this, but, but to say to the listeners that this is an incredibly complicated area. And, and part of the reason is because everybody's got a vested interest in, in, in trying to trace their polity back to the beginning, right? That's right. And I get that. Uh, and everyone feels like they've got to sort of show that theirs was the first. And okay, that's 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 part of the problem. The, the other part of the problem, though, and I think this is the real issue, is that our sources are very both vague, spotty, and they disagree with each other. And what I mean by that is it's not as simple as saying the early church did X and, and, and said a Y, because the early church did lots of things, um, particularly in the second century, which was a transitional phase. Um, what I argue in the book, as you know, and this is something that people are free to disagree with me on, um, is that uh, I think there's a difference between what we see in our first century sources and what begins to happen in our second century sources. Uh, In a nutshell, I think in our first century sources, we see bishops and presbyters as largely synonymous terms uh, and regularly spoken of in pluralities. So it's not just a presbyter or a bishop, but bishops and presbyters, which largely overlap. And then in the second century, we start to see a shift. Um, and then by the time the second century is over, that shift is fairly well taken place, which is now there seems to be a distinction in some sense between bishops and presbyters in such a way that the bishop is singular and the presbyters remain plural. So now you almost have three offices, a, a bishop, then a presbyter or presbytery, and then deacon. Um, now, there's all kinds of debate about how that transition happened. And of course, some would argue there was no transition. I've got Sources I've copied or documented in my book that argue, no, 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 it was bishops from the start. Fair enough. But at least that's the argument I made in the book, that there was a transition time in the second century, which is another reason why I think the second century is so interesting. Um, thank you. Uh, I still feel like I've got a job, so I'm, I'm, I'm very grateful. <laughs> uh, if I recall correctly, in uh, Christianity at the Crossroads, you suggest that one of the potential developments in the creation of a singular bishop 
that by that phrase I'm, I'm meaning a, a bishop with who has oversight um, and responsibility was to assist the church in guarding the Christian faith against heresy, uh, what we might call perhaps the defense of the faith. Uh, and and if, I, if I recall correctly, uh, Ignatius writes about the role of a singular bishop and refers to the sacramental ministry and headship of such a man. Is this the foundation for what has developed into the role and ministry of bishops as we understand them, uh, certainly in our own Anglican context in the 21st century? Well, I think it's a theory, um, and I mention it in the book as a, as a plausible theory. Uh, for those who haven't read the book, I don't, I don't make a sustained argument that, that the rise of heresy is the cause of the mono-episcopate. I think it's a possible cause. Um, and, and I think it's, it, it, it's, it's plausible and, you know, we, and I, I cover elsewhere in the book, uh, and, and people who are familiar with the second century know this is that it was a very vigorous time of, of theological debate and disagreement over what things that were very, uh, heretical out there in the church. And that in those sort of wars, so to speak, um, uh, I think a, a singular bishop would have been a very useful and practical development to fight those fights. I think also what's interesting is that the the heretical groups were appealing to singular bishops. And there are some who think that the the orthodox institution of the singular bishop was a reaction to heretical groups that were appealing to their own uh, uh, line, so to speak, of bishops that could go all the way back to Jesus. Now, whether that's the case or not is, de- is debated. Um, but I do think the rise of heresy and a vigorous heresy certainly makes the ch- church adjust and try to find a way to fight it. And and I think to some extent that's legitimate. And what I mean by that is I think there's some freedom and polity within ranges where you try to practically think about how to structure the church and the best way to to defend her and, and sustain her health. And I think that's probably what was in the minds of many people in the second century. Yes, that's fascinating because while I trust that the bishops that we will raise up, certainly within the Anglican Church in North America, will be godly uh, founding their doctrine on, on uh, upon God's word, uh, we we have also seen in our polity what's happened what happens when bishops go bad uh, and the damage and uh, and and collapse that bishops can bring through the episcopacy uh, to the church which is a tragedy um dr Kruger I, I I wonder what you might say about the following statement let me read it to you the godly historic episcopate is an inherent part of the apostolic faith and practice and therefore as integral to the fullness and unity of the body of Christ. Yeah, um, I, that's an interesting statement. I, I, I think, uh, you know, several things about that I think are, are, are noteworthy. One is it sounds like that statement is linking the episcopate directly to the apostolic uh, institution, meaning that if we're going to be true to the apostles, we need an episcopate to do that. Um, I, I, in the book, argue for something a little different, which is I think when we look at the first century sources, the apostolic sources, we don't see a clear episcopate at that time, um, or mono-episcopate, I should say, at that time. And I think that 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 raises uh, questions about that statement. The other thing is that it, it almost makes it sound like you have to have a certain polity to be true to the, the apostolic sort of faith. And I, I'm not sure I would want to link those two so tightly. I think you can have a lot of... Um, uh, fidelity to the apostolic foundation without necessarily having to have a mono-episcopate. I hope I, I'm i not out of a job either in this discussion, right? <laughs> Absolutely. I'm, um, a, a presbyter and not a, not a bishop. Um, so in that sense, I think I would probably not necessarily link this particular uh, structure of polity 
to the apostles so tightly. And, and that's why I really take the view of Jerome. And, and what I mean by that is um, I, I put a quote in my book, Christianity at the Crossroads, that where Jerome talks about the rise of the mono-episcopate. And he, he argues that it's useful and helpful, and he even links it to the rise of heresy. But then he says at the end of his quote that, that, that you have to remember, though, that the, the mono-episcopate is sort of a practical development from the tradition of the church and not something instituted by the Lord. Um, and people can disagree with Jerome. That's fine. Um, but it is interesting that, that he thought it, it was it was a fine practice, a legitimate practice, but he did not so tightly link the practice to the beginning um, in a way that made it sound like if you lacked the practice that you, somehow you were uh, non-apostolic. Yeah, I thought I find that fascinating, obviously, as a bishop in, in an Anglican ordination service. Uh, there are a number of things the bishop does. He lays on hands to ordain, but he also uh, gives the apostolic word, the Bible. Uh, and he says, receive the word of God, go proclaim it to me. That is uh, a significant moment uh, uh, in that ordination service, because without that, surely, you know, really, what, what are we doing? Um, and that must be the basis, surely, of our ministry, uh, ordained and lay. Clearly, the church, uh, as it developed structurally uh, from Christ and the apostles through the second century, uh, developed in ways that would shape not only the church, but Western culture, too. Um Christianity in the 21st century is much at the crossroads in some societies. The influence of the gospel through the church appears to have eroded. Uh, if I recall correctly, it was Dr. Billy Graham, the late Dr. Billy Graham, in his millennial sermon who said, never has the Christian church faced so many challenges on so many fronts, political, social, demographic, economic, philosophical. Uh, in response to these challenges, he said, uh, the church today often seems paralyzed and confused and torn by division and uncertainty. Instead of becoming salt and light to the world, we have been content to withdraw into our own separate ecclesiastical ghettos, preoccupied uh, with our own internal affairs and unconcerned about the deepest needs of those around us. He concluded by saying, in the eyes of many, religion has lost its relevance and is little more than a quaint relic from another time. Um, Dr. Kruger, how can the church today avoid losing relevance, and how can she ensure she is more than a quaint relic from another time? Yeah, great, great quote. Um, I've not, not heard that quote, and, and certainly I, I would agree with it. I mean, we are in danger, and I would say every generation at some point is, of, of losing our influence on the world. And we can be very insular as Christians sometimes. Sometimes we do need to deal with our own issues, to be sure. Sometimes we, we can withdraw and, and hole up. Um, I will say that uh, some of the lessons I picked up in my book on the second century, I think, really do help us see um, the kind of things that we need to do to make sure that we're pressing forward. I mean, one, one thing very simply that I know this sounds like, like it's not much, uh, but one thing I would say we need to do as a church is make sure we just don't stop doing the basics. And what I mean by that, we, we need to continue to meet together and worship Jesus. Um, it's a very simple statement. It's a very basic thing, but that's one of the things the early Christian church said, well, you know, no matter what, we're going to keep doing that. Um, and that's actually part of what makes it healthy and strong is that you continue to worship your Lord. The, the second thing the church did, and I think is, a, is, an, is an application for today, is that they, they would not uh, and did not compromise the exclusivity of Christ. And I think this is going to be the, 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 the watershed for our church today. Is Jesus uh, the, the, the Lord? Is he uh, the one true God? And do we believe that, that everybody uh, should worship him? 
Uh, the early Christians believed that. And when they said it and when they held to it, they received enormous amounts of, of uh, persecution from their surrounding world. And what's interesting is that the surrounding world in the second century was professedly tolerant, and they professed themselves to be uh, you know, pluralistic and that you could have a pantheon of gods. But the one thing they would not tolerate is exclusivity. And so I think there's just a huge lesson there. The way the early Christians prevailed is by faithfully worshiping Jesus and not compromising on his exclusive claims to be the one true God. Uh, and as soon as you start compromising on, on either of those, you end up uh, losing your way. Dr. Kruger, it's been uh, just fascinating and an incredible gift to have you on Living Through the Word today. Uh, before we conclude, uh, can you tell us about the ministry of your wife, Melissa? Uh, I've heard that she is an excellent speaker and author. Can you tell us a little bit about Melissa? Absolutely. She's fantastic. And um, just so proud of her and all the Lord's using her to do. She is um, the director of women's content for the Gospel Coalition. Uh, and if you're familiar, of course, and most of your your, your listeners would be, it's it's a it's a major uh, international ministry that has all kinds of resources and website and speaking and conference conferences. And so she speaks uh, uh, for TGC, works for TGC, and then has her own speaking and writing ministry. Um, and has written, uh, I think, more than five books now. Um, and so uh, it's not unusual for me to to go speak at conferences myself and people recognize me as Melissa Kruger's husband rather than anything else. So I can laugh at that. I, Isn't that that's fantastic? fine. I can live with it. Yep. Well, Dr. Kruger, thank you so much for uh, being my guest today. Just delightful uh, to have you uh, on this episode and to uh, share your wisdom with us. Uh, Thank you, Julian. Great to be with you. Dr. Kruger is the author of many valuable books uh, that should be on the shelves of every library uh, in the diocese. His work is immensely valuable to us, and we have included links to purchase several of his books in the podcast show notes. Uh, I encourage you to make use of these resources. Uh, This is Living Through the Word, and I'm Julian Dobbs. I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. 